Welcome to Do Beautiful Things. I'm your host, Jenny Lawson, President and CEO of Keep America Beautiful. In this podcast, we'll discuss ending litter, the truth behind recycling, and making communities beautiful for people and for a more sustainable future. We'll be talking to industry experts, community leaders, and everyday people who want to do the right thing, including from time to time, my mother. Thank you for joining us. I hope you learned something, and I know I will. Hello and welcome. This is Jenny Lawson, and I'm happy to welcome you today to the second of our podcast series on the Recycling Reality Check. This series is all about unraveling the mysteries behind all of those questions around recycling by talking to the experts about what the truths and myths are around recycling. So today I am very, very pleased to welcome Louise Bruce. And Louise is the Managing Director at the Recycling Partnership Center for Sustainable Behavior and Impact. Louise, welcome. Uh, Hopefully you hold the keys to many of the mysteries to help us understand the human behaviors uh, and what works and what doesn't in helping people understand how they are can be more empowered around recycling. Jenny, thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here in conversation with you. To get started, I'd love to learn a little bit more uh, about how you got into this work. What brought you to studying recycling as a behavior? Oh, such a good question. I um, I, I suppose the truth is when you ask my parents um, is that I've been obsessed with trash from for my whole life. I think I can... I can remember, you know, as a high schooler, specifically in 10th grade, getting all my friends up to do trash cleanups in Rock Creek Park, which is the hometown park of Washington, D.C., where I grew up. I moved to New York City after college. There was this vacant lot. This is truly my sort of trash origin story. I'm realizing as it's coming up, I, there was this vacant lot on my block in Brooklyn that I became absolutely obsessed with. I would walk my dog around the block and I would see it and I would just think about what it could be and ultimately was able to sort of long story short, convince the owner of that vacant lot to um, cut the cut the lock, let us in and we turned it into a community composting project where I saw my neighbors really come together, you know, people who didn't never knew each other, all of a sudden this this vacant lot was this wonderful space where we were turning something that was a waste product in our households into a material that was you know beautifying our neighborhood growing a garden and and nourishing our soils um and that was just this really important aha moment for me that recycling it's really an important environmental behavior it's really an important kind of um public service that really should be offered in communities across the country, but it's also a way that it's like something very intimate that brings us all together. And it became this wonderful way that I got to know my neighbors and my city. And I think the rest is history. I then went on to join the New York City Department of Sanitation, where I worked for, you know, quite some time on our food waste and organics portfolio. And then more recently, I've joined the Recycling Partnership to stand up our Center for Sustainable Behavior and Impact. Wonderful. It's a great story. And I think we all have that experience of understanding our relationship to materials and not only the products and services that come out the other side, but the experience of doing something important with others, the community that you build when you all focus together on, on solving some problems and creating something new in your community. So yeah, it's a, it's a really great story. So why is it that the Recycling Partnership focuses on household recycling behaviors? How did you get into that part of the narrative? 
this is the central question of our work. At the Recycling Partnership, we're focused on, we're a national nonprofit, um, and we're focused on working with stakeholders across the recycling value chain to improve recycling rates nationally. One of our core reasons for founding was that far too few Americans have access to uh, recycling services and recycling services that are on par with the um, trash collection services that they receive. And so we started with this question of can Americans recycle? And to that end, you know, we see that still about somewhere around 40 million U.S. households do not have access, um, that equitable access that I described to recycling services. But if you narrow the field of vision to the households that do, we start to see some really interesting trends. And namely, we see a very significant intention action gap. So while there is just tremendous national support for recycling, you'll see in surveys that 80% of U.S. residents um, think that recycling is, is not only something that um, a service that they expect to have provided to them, um, not only something that is good for the environment and the right thing for their community, but it's a responsibility they feel that they should take on and their neighbors should take on. So really tremendous public support for an institution. Um, and yet what we found is that among those households that have access to curbside recycling, we're losing somewhere around 50% of the materials that are generated by that home. Um, so if the average U.S. home generates 750 to 800 pounds of recyclables per year, we're losing somewhere between three and 400 pounds of those recyclables due to behavior gaps. And so, you know, seeing that trend in the numbers, um, we really want to figure out how can we better support people? How can we better engage residents across the country so that we can bring more material into the system? Yeah. So if, if people knew more, they might do more. Is that the bottom line? Yeah, so we see a couple of trends in our national research. So the first is that um, far too few Americans are receiving communication about their local recycling program. So to your point, if people knew more, they would do more. Um, we found that 75, 75% of Americans cannot recall receiving a communication from their local recycling program. Um, so, and that could be because they're they're not. Um, we find that recycling programs are are sort of way under-resourced. Um, and that and and you know that might be the case that they're not able to send the communications out to their residents that they need to to inform them about their programs. We're also seeing though that in some cases it's because we're not designing communications that are really catching people's attention and drawing them in in this very loud kind of information-rich world that we live in. The other sort of core trends are people are quite confused. So we trust labels, but when we're actually tested on what they're telling us to do or tested on what the materials and instructions we receive are telling us to do, um, we tend to make mistakes. Uh, and so I think we need to figure out what it, how can we better deliver instructions to people. We're also seeing a very alarming trend which is that um, it appears that confidence in recycling is eroding. Um, and so we're starting, we're, we're concerned about this because I think we can solve for confusion. But if we lose people, if people stop believing in the promise that we've made that, um, that recycling is supposed to deliver, which is that my materials are made into new things, then um, it will be very, very difficult to build a resilient circular economy and bring people back. Um, so I think it's those communication, confusion, confidence and then I might throw context in there that you know if you if you don't have the tools and the systems set up then you can't participate so much in that description to to sort of unpack as you were talking one of the things that that sort of occurred to me was of course not everyone is getting the information like 75% of people aren't if you think about it and I was thinking about my own situation here 
you know, I'm busy during the day. My husband's retired. He gets the mail from the Department of Environmental Services in his email, not not me. I may never see it, right? But I'm still doing 50% of the waste production in my household, right? So, so I'm not getting that message at all where he might be getting it, right? And the idea that just because the email account owner is getting the message that somehow the whole household knows is is a disconnect. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think you. there's two pieces in there that I think are really important. And that first piece is the, the intra-household communications. So we've conducted sort of a number of ethnographies where we have gone into the home and really observed um, a, sort of in great depth. What is the relationship people have with their packaging that they're bringing into their home? What are the systems they're building? Um, how is that like, how does that impact household dynamics? And we see a couple of trends. One, you know, there's like so many great anecdotes we have of, of, you know, maybe like a husband and a wife or a partner standing over the sink and saying, oh, wait, you recycle that? I had no idea that. So there's a, you, you find that the, the sort of conceptions or systems um, heuristics that people have in their mind differ even among household members, which is a really interesting insight. And we've been thinking about what does it mean to um, support, like sort of support some of the champions we see in households. We often see someone who is sort of the leader of the household. Maybe they're the one that makes the effort to st set up the system. I was on a call earlier today where someone described in his household, he's he, you know, goes through the materials at the end of the line and is the one that picks things out. Um, so anyway, how do we support you people um, or sort of better communication in the home? I think the other piece is we talk a lot about, I think the, the piece that, that you mentioned there about channels, like your husband hearing about it, but maybe you haven't heard about it. We're thinking deeply at the Recycling Partnership about how do we build a communications infrastructure that's on par with the physical infrastructure that we're rolling out for recycling and really taps into more channels or more ways to reach the whole family and the, you know, a whole community as opposed to just sort of certain champions or certain individuals. And, and I think that if we, if we can solve that, we will see a big payoff because what we're seeing, the sort of silver lining of the, the stats that I said earlier is that, you know, the 75% of Americans don't recall receiving communications about their local recycling programs, but the 25% who, who do are showing much higher levels of confidence in themselves in the system and sort of indicating lower levels of confusion around what to recycle. So communication works and we have to figure out how do we get it to everyone? How do we help our champions? How do we, you know, get the right messengers out there um, getting this information to the right people? It's really interesting, you know, because we at Keep America Beautiful are a little bit focused on when all those systems go wrong, right? And, and things end up as litter on the ground or recycling in public spaces and how those messages play in that environment, right? So, and, and some of the research we've seen that I've seen really shows that in terms of building confidence, it's confidence in the system in their own home and then in their community, but then also more broadly that the system will deliver the promise that it's intended to. And so we're spending a lot of time and have something really cool that we'll roll out in November that is really celebrating the products that come from recycling. So people are reminded when you do recycle, 
good things happen, right? Um, materials in the system are, um, you know, refabricated into new materials and new products and new services. And we don't go have to go back to nature um, to, to look for those resources. We've got them, you know, literally right in our blue bins um, where, or whatever color it might be for your community. Yeah, I, um, I think it's, first of all, I'll say it's really exciting to hear how much you're diving into this issue of confidence, and maybe that's a place that we can work together to explore further. I think we're, um, and, and I think that messaging you're putting together is really exciting because we're seeing confidence in the same way that it's, it's not just sort of, it, it has some important components. So it's my confidence in myself. It's my confidence in the service that's um, delivered to me by my community confidence in this sort of broader promise as you say that the, the system will deliver and then confidence in the that you know the package and the label that's being that I'm interacting with is communicating to me um, in an honest and accurate way um, and so we've been really trying to unpack this this idea of confidence where we launched um, last year something called the recycling confidence index which is a baseline measurement of confidence nationally and we're hoping to rerun that at regular intervals so that we can continue to track the trends here um, what we're seeing is a bit alarming is this erosion, as I talked about earlier, and, and we're seeing that this is potentially not just a U.S. trend, but a global one when we look to research by some of our partners. Um, so a place that we're really focused right now on tracking, understanding, but and then also developing interventions that can help restore that confidence. It does seem overwhelming at times. We all see those images and you think, how do we overcome this, right? And so... As you all think about your work and, and since your founding, right, you're just a year old. This is a lot of work that you've been doing in the past year. Sort of what have you accomplished? What are those things you're excited about and sort of what's ahead for you all? Yeah. So, you know, as you said, we we um, we have an initiative that's about a little past its year, uh, one year birthday um, called the Center for Sustainable Behavior and Impact. And um, we launched that for all the reasons we've discussed here today. And we started with a very sort of ambitious initial set of research. So we conducted a series of national surveys. I think in total, we, we surveyed somewhere around 10,000 Americans across the various tools. We did an audience segmentation. Um, we surveyed BIPOC populations. Um, we did a survey specifically on labeling and package design um, and sort of uh, resident insights on those. And then we did, as I was mentioning earlier, this deep dive into the home where we looked at um, what it, what it is that like really, this is actually quite an intimate experience, right? It's like, it's my home, I design my home. Um, it's, it's very, we're seeing for ethnography that this is very close to what we, a sort of theme of homemaking excellence. When you think about all the work that people are doing to, you know, have excellent organization systems. Um, we're seeing that, that recycling and materials management is much more akin to that than it is sort of, than do people kind of relate it to their trash, for instance. We took all of that quantitative and qualitative survey and inquiry and prototyped a set of different interventions. So think messaging or in-home bins, the tools that people might need to support their recycling behaviors. And we deployed those tools to 52,000 U.S. homes across seven jurisdictions. And the, the idea here, so the point of throwing all those numbers at you is really to say that what we're trying to do at the center and what I feel like we've we've um, advanced very significantly in our first year alone is, is get at this idea of go beyond what people say they want and say they need. That's very important. For example, you talked about this earlier. People say 
they they really want to know what's happening to my materials. They want to see what their materials are becoming. They want to see the material recovery facilities where those materials are being managed. But we also need to, beyond understanding that, we need to actually go all the way to the bin and see how do the interventions we deploy impact participation and impact capture of the materials we recover. So, so that's sort of how we think about our research. We try to understand sentiments, trends, barriers, and then we put that to work in the field in real world context to understand does that have an increase ultimately on recycling for a given community. So I wanted to ask you about, so from that, like what interventions, what 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 things are working to help people? And I hope that one of them is if the chasing arrows are bigger so you can actually read them over the age of 30, that would be a great outcome if that's a, a functional intervention. That's so interesting that you say that we have, we're thinking about labeling and QR codes and um, and I'll come back to that, but would love to dig in on that with you. One of the things, I think if you had asked me before we started this, would messaging alone work? And I'm being very honest here, I would have probably said no. I think about like sort of the work that I've done in, in past roles, you know, overseeing community outreach or the development of materials and, and then seeing the impact on the other end. And I think I thought, oh gosh, can we really do this with a messaging campaign? Um, and I you know, maybe had some skepticism myself to that. I was wrong. Um, we, saw, um, we saw we had a really interesting pilot or sort of set of pilots where we looked at, first we started with that audience segmentation that I mentioned. So we looked at who are our recyclers. And I think the high level sort of punchline there for me is we, half of the population are what we call our eco-activators and our committed followers. These are really active recyclers, people who are going to research how to start a program if there isn't one. They're going to figure out where to get the information about their recycling program. And so this is a group that's that's highly motivated and, and looks like their participation behavior is higher. And we saw this and we thought, oh gosh, we've been communicating really well with this half of the population and potentially leaving behind the other three motivational segments that came out in our in our audience segmentation research who are feeling much more disconnected, but disconnected from the recycling system, not because um, they don't necessarily, they don't value it. I think you'll still see that in that, that high public support, but, but because they're feeling frustrated, they're feeling confusion, they're feeling sort of that confidence erosion and barriers to recycling at a higher level than these other segments. And so we thought, okay, what if we, what if we instead designed campaigns specifically for the, these three audiences, these three motivational segments? And what came out of that process was we drew a series of sort of design challenges with our internal and external design teams and, and then some sort of additional focus group conversations. We came out of that segment of the research with three general directions for messaging. One is a logical message that's very similar to sort of what happens to your recyclable material. But the other two were focused more on sort of em empathy and emotion. So, you know, what happens if we, what one of the, the emotional message was about ever wonder what tomorrow will bring. And so you picture, I know this is on a podcast, but picture, if you will, um, a, a group of friends on a hillside and they're seeing the hillside overtaken by a landfill. Um, and it says, ever wonder what tomorrow will bring. So sort of this doomsday message. And the other message was our, what we call our empathetic message, where imagine a really adorable but confused and frustrated cat cartoon cat standing next to a recycling bin and a happy hedgehog comes over and says, are you confused about recycling? And the cat says, always. And the hedgehog essentially affirms that that's okay. It sort of has empathy for this feeling of confusion around recycling. 
we put these three messages to um, work in the field. We took them to Chicago, and then we did a, a sort of citywide pilot in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, where we divided the city up into four with a control and then sort of three messaging treatments. And we saw that coming out of that, the logical message, unfortunately, and I'll come back to this, didn't have a statistically significant impact on recycling behaviors, but the empathetic and emotional messages did. The empathetic message was really the star of this study, uh, had a 38% increase, statistically significant increase over the control in terms of recycling tonnage. So we saw really this major increase that I, I don't think I would have thought possible from, from messaging alone. That was, a, that was a major success. You know, you sort of said that the, the rational approach really didn't work, uh, not statistically significant change. Anything else that didn't work? People are asking for that logical message. And so what so I have a lot of questions around what the disconnect is there that I think we that merit further exploration, you know, could have been sort of how we delivered it. I also think that the, the there's like this demand for very specific information around what happens to my my material. So we think the logical message is still very important, but we perhaps need to think about first of all, where it is in the logic of the, the sort of ladder of engagement, the storytelling narrative, do we start with that? Or do we start with this empathetic message to draw people in um, and then pull them into the specifics or allow them to dig deeper as they have capacity and interest to do so? And then the other thing is like, I think we're, we're seeing you know, very strong impact from local level delivery. So I think of all the all of your affiliates and volunteers and, and how much the messenger matters. And I, I think it's possible that delivering that logical message or that storytelling about the recycling system's successes, about how things really work, may be more impactful when it comes from my neighbors, my local program, um, and sort of you know entities that are familiar to me. It's just it's just so interesting, right? Um, and you know, at the end of the day, in the course of all human history, recycling behavior is relatively recent behavior, right? Like. Um, this idea that you just don't throw something away is a relatively modern message, right? Uh, behavior. Uh, Tom Sazaki from TerraCycle, he and I were on a panel together last year, and he said, people have been throwing things away, throwing things out since the beginning of time. It's how we understand ancient history is by studying the trash piles of, of, of cultures, right? And so... Um, but but how we do that in the modern world is quite different. And this recycling narrative is 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 a new narrative to the conversation. So, you know, it it is in the context of the world, it is uh, relatively new and a new behavior for us all to learn. And it is going to take many different modes and many different um, interventions. Right. It, it's it's almost about maybe a little like dental floss, right? Like it is it is what the dentist gives you when you go, but it's also what you do at home and it's what you expect and see in others and like how that whole behavior is a learned behavior. Um, and we just have to create those learning moments in many, many different ways. And one thing that we haven't touched on yet, but I just think holds so much promise because I think even my mother might be able to do this is... Um, is is there the QR code conversation? Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't mind, just a slight um, tangent. Um, I had this aha moment the other day when I was driving from upstate New York, where I live, to Washington D.C., and I I was like noticing how many you know counties and state lines and jurisdictions I cross. 
And I thought, oh my goodness, um, and perhaps this is obvious, but it hit me after many years working in recycling that um, imagine if every time I crossed one of those lines on that road trip, the recycling rules, I mean, the, the rules of driving rules changed. Um, like the signs were purple instead of a different color. The arrows or, you know, the, the symbols we use were different. The kind of um, understandings of how to abide by speed limits and so forth were different. It would make it very, very difficult to travel anywhere in this country efficiently um, if we had, if that was fragmented. Instead, we have this, you know, almost for the most part uniform system of communicating driving rules um, to drivers across the country in a uniform way. I think recycling can feel a little bit like that. I can in just the, you know, my day-to-day -day life, I could, I could work in a place in a jurisdiction with one set of rules. Um, and even within a jurisdiction, commercial would be different from residential potentially. Um, then I could go home or, you know, take my children to play um, somewhere. And, and all of those locations could have a different set of recycling rules. And it makes it very, very hard for us to, to for us as humans, as people navigating the system to be on top of what the rules are in each of those locations. Um, and so what we've tried to do with the recycling partnership is think about ways that we can make that um, experience simpler. And so we've compiled um, what we call our national recycling database. It has the accepted materials list for all 9,000 recycling programs across the country. And that has opened up the ability for us to do things like Recycle Check, which is a QR code that we're rolling out um, actually this month. Uh, with uh, some of our brand partners to see, and it'll essentially be a QR code that shows up on package that people can scan and they'll get information or they'll get accurate information about what's acceptable um, in their locality. So I could scan it in one location and get one answer and I'll get it scanned in another location, potentially get a different answer. And those will both be accurate for where I am based on my phone's geolocation services or the zip code that I put in. And it gets even better. Um, and the better part is that this is really better for me as someone who comes from, who formerly worked for a local recycling program. Um, the, we've opened up a doorway into that database for local recycling program managers to be able to update and verify their accepted material list in real time. So imagine I'm a community that has maybe a drop-off program and I um, expand that program to be a curbside collection program and accept more materials. I can just from one day to the next, go log in, update that, that accepted materials list and without changing the package, without changing anything, any of the materials, that my residents will get updated information about that package in real time. And I think that's really, I'm just so excited about putting the power of communications or sort of leveraging, again, this idea of a communications infrastructure to give uh, local recycling program managers and, and leaders a kind of a, a big say in what a package is communicating about its recyclability to residents. That's great. And so deeply needed, right? That that moment of information, uh, you know, as we were talking about the different aspects of the chain of behavior, right, that the thing is in my hand, what do I do with it? is a really important question. So Louise, thank you. Thank you to the folks at Recycling Partnership. We're incredibly grateful for the work that you're doing, for the time you've taken with us today to help us understand a little bit more about what you're doing. Is there a place online that folks can go to learn more about how to find that QR code or look on their zip code, learn a little bit more? What's possible uh, on your website? Yeah, all, all of that's available on our re website, recyclingpartnership.org. You can go there to find out more information about the Center for Sustainable Behavior and Impact and all the research I mentioned is available at that site. Um, if you're interested in learning more about how RecycleCheck works, 
that's also published on our website. And then we do have a chat bot on the website that you can use to ask questions that's stemming from that same database. So you'll, you can get the experience in real time. And if you notice anything that works particularly well about it or anything that needs improvement or any errors, we want to hear from you. Really, we're excited to be rolling out these tools in real time in partnership with all of your listeners and all of the incredible recycling leaders across the country. So I really encourage everyone who's listening to get in touch with us. That's great. And we appreciate, again, all that you're doing. And, uh, you know, I think we should talk to you too about how do we sort of cross-share that information onto the KAB recycling platform so that uh, so that folks can find that connection straight away. So I think an absolute takeaway for us is to figure out how we do that well together. Uh, Louise, thanks for joining us. And uh, uh, thank you all for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I just want to say how grateful I am for this time with you. Um, this has been a wonderful discussion, and I hope it's the beginning of many, many more. Coming up next, I have a special guest joining me, my mom. Mom is a reoccurring part of this segment, and she's going to help us bust some recycling myths by throwing everyday recycling questions my way and to watch me fumble with the answers sometimes, but see if I can be helpful others. I'll break down the answers, and perhaps it'll invite more questions from you. So stick around because we might just be tackling a question that you have had on your mind for years. So mom, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. I um, had a question. What about some of these labels that are on? I find them even more difficult almost on the glass containers where you're trying to peel them off. Do they should be all peeled off before they go in recycling? Yeah, the the labels you don't need to strip those off. They, uh, the modern recycling facilities uh, have the ability to separate those from the recyclable materials. So leave the labels on. Well, thanks, because um, sometimes those are very difficult. Yeah. Um, and so uh, some, what about it, once they pick up the recycling, which they, for us, don't do here, we must walk to a certain area. Um, and so what happens then? Does it go to a bigger city usually or where does it all go? Yeah, you know, you've said so many things that are really relevant. So your recycling goes from the truck and here's something really interesting, right? Like we hear a lot about people who are like, oh, they're just throwing our recycling in the trash truck and it's not even getting recycled at all. Most of the many, many um, providers who pick up uh, solid waste and your garbage, uh, they have split trucks these days. One side of that truck is for recycling. One side of it is mm. for uh, uh, other items that you might be that might be going to the landfill. And so, uh, so you shouldn't worry about what it looks like. It's all going in one truck. Those trucks are actually separated on the inside. And from there, it goes to what's called a MRF. The MRF, M-R-F, is a materials recovery facility, a big, huge building that sorts and bundles and stores and ships recycled material uh, back to, uh, to manufacturers and to other facilities to make new products. And in fact, an aluminum can, once you recycle, it goes through that whole pot process all the way back to a manufacturer and can be on the shelf in 60 days. It's all wow. it takes. 
Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah I'm, it really I'm a fan is. of recycled aluminum. It's it's a really effective. You'll see me. I often, if I'm having a fizzy drink or something, choose choose aluminum in that moment. Wow, wow. I uh, I guess like a a good trip for someone would day trip to go to a recycling place would be pretty interesting for people. It's um, really interesting. Yeah, maybe we can find the one on, on Ken Island and go do that together sometime. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I'm sure we'll get some people who'd like to join us. Well, that's our show for today. And I hope you learned something new about recycling. I know I did. I still want to get my question answered about how big can they make those triangles so that us with old eyes can read them. But I thank you, uh, all of you, Uh and our Recycling Reality Check partners who made this podcast possible. To learn more, please visit kab.org and also the Recycling Partnership. Be sure to subscribe to Do Beautiful Things so you'll be notified when our next episode drops. Coming up in the series, we will discuss the life cycle of an aluminum can and how quickly it can be back on the shelves. We'll look at the science behind PET, the plastic and water and soda bottles, and so much more. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.